The Ark of the Covenant was a deadly serious thing. It was, people believed, the box that held the stone tablets of the law, the vessel of God's presence. One legend tells of a man who reached out to keep it from falling off of a cart and was struck dead when he touched it because it was so powerful. It was sort of a a cosmic live wire surging with God's power. It brought blessings to any Israelite settlement that housed it and a curse upon any enemy of Israel who stole it. It demanded to be taken seriously. The ark figures prominently in this text about a thousand years before the birth of Christ, sometime around 999 BC, King David had just captured Jerusalem from the Jebusites. And he's bringing the sacred Ark of the Covenant there from Judah to establish the city as his new capital, the city of David, as it would forever come to be known. It's a big day for Israel and for David, a day of great pomp and circumstance. But David has little patience for royal formalities, reminding us that there's something to be said, even in the midst of such serious matters for playing the fool. A reading from 2 Samuel. It was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the Ark of the God. So David went and brought up the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the Ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. David danced before the Lord with all his might. David was girded with a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations upon all of our hearts, serve to glorify you. And may they be in keeping always with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I've been going to a lot of parties lately. What with all the children's birthday soirees that my two boys get invited to, I've really been getting around. It's a good thing, too, because those are the only parties that I get invited to. (laughs) My kids, though, are very popular. They're very in demand at these pre-adolescent black tie functions where anyone who's anyone is there. We uh, we got an invite from from Maddie for her birthday. She's sort of the leader of the other three-year-olds at the daycare that my son Levi goes to. She's the de facto governor uh, of the little toddler society that they've built over there. She's the only one who can talk in complete sentences. (laughs) So she pretty much calls the shots. She's a big deal. Let's see, we also went to a party for Miles, uh, the one-year-old who lives down the street from us. He threw a big shindig, slept through most of it uh, because he was partying so hard the night before. A couple months ago, my older son, Ethan, got invited to a bowling party down at the main event in Naperville. 
Kids had a blast, all the first graders hurling bowling balls down the lane, saved from the gutters by the merciful rubber bumpers that kept them from falling in. They have this new thing for kids now, too. I don't think they had these when I was growing up. It's like a, a big plastic ramp, usually shaped like a dinosaur or something. You just put the ball on it and push it off. Uh, and you give it a little push and it rolls down the lane so they don't actually have to pick up the ball and throw it themselves. Most of the kids were using it. Seems to me like it kind of takes the fun out of the game. But then to be honest, I've never had much fun bowling anyway. You see, I am probably the worst bowler that you have ever met. My average score probably hovers, I'd say, in the low 30s. And I once played an entire game without hitting a single pin. Now, even as a child, my own family used to make fun of me and point and laugh when I threw the ball directly into the gutter. Uh, or more often than I care to admit, into the neighboring lane. I never enjoyed the game, but I did think it was kind of funny when, you know, the guy with one of those special bowling gloves and the, the ball with his name engraved on it uh, takes things a little too seriously. You know, I thought it was funny when you get all flustered and angry when my ball sailed into his lane and ruined his perfect shot. Not as funny when it happens now, though. Guy usually threatens to beat me up. But uh, a couple weeks ago, I, uh, I took Ethan bowling. Uh, just the two of us. He'd been wanting to go since the party at the main event, uh, and I finally gave in. And I gotta tell you, even though I gave it everything I had, he totally crushed me. Kid's seven years old. I think he actually felt bad for me. Do you want to use the bumpers, Dad? He asked me without a hint of sarcasm. How about the ramp? I'm a lost cause. To me, bowling feels more like work than fun. I mean, just lifting the ball is pretty hard work. And even though I'm not uh, nearly as good, in a lot of ways, I'm like the dude in the league who takes it too seriously because I'm so, so laser-focused, so determined uh, to prove to whoever is watching or just to myself that I can do this, that I can do it right, straining every nerve, tensing every muscle, that by the time I let go and drop the ball into the gutter, I'm just relieved that my turn is over. I have no interest in playing games that feel like work. I know that life uh, isn't one big party, you know, but uh, that doesn't mean that it has to be a big spreadsheet either. I mean, I don't even really like doing work that feels like work. I, I was just rereading a, a book from one of our own members, Tom Montgomery Fate, and in one chapter titled Fathers Watching Sons, he relates this anecdote of dropping his son off at preschool when he was little. And it really struck a chord with me. He writes, I saw myself in the presence of those little kids and wanted to crawl back on all fours into their world, to dress myself up in their total surrender to the now. And in a kind of vision that could turn Legos into spaceships and Play-Doh into edible blue snakes, when, I wonder, did I first begin to lose my faith in the moment I was living in? When did my life start to feel like a faucet that never stops dripping, like a sprawling to-do list? 
Most of us don't have the privilege of checking ourselves into a daycare every morning and playing with toys all day. That doesn't mean that there isn't enjoyment to be found in the work of our hands, in the work that we're called to do. King David models this beautifully in this text. He's a more complex, more three-dimensional character than almost anyone else in the Bible. David is, by turns, a hero, a king, a rogue, and a scoundrel, and not necessarily in that order. But for all of his flaws, this text perfectly captures the joy that he finds in his work and the things that he sets out to do. Here we find David leading a parade through the streets before the hallowed Ark of the Covenant. But David isn't clad as a king, marching in solemn procession to the tune of a battle hymn. No, he's, he's stripped himself down to a linen cloth, unencumbered by the battle-worn armor he wears or the crown that weighs so heavily upon his brow. In this moment, he's enjoying what he does. He's free from the formal trappings of his station, which indeed can often feel like a trap or a gilded cage. He's not marching solemnly, putting one foot in front of the other. He's dancing. (laughs) He's dancing. He's flailing about. His body filled with the energy of God. Just like the Ark of the Covenant itself, moving to the music. You know, according to ancient scholars of the Levant, that's exactly how people used to dance back then. (laughs) David dances like a maniac with reckless abandon, flailing about to the festive sound of harps and trumpets and drums. People are loving it. They're joining him in the celebration. This could have been just another dreary procession, drenched in dull formality, but David's unfettered joy is infectious. It ripples through the crowds. His wife, Michal, on the other hand, is not pleased. We're told that she looked upon David and his wild parade with scorn. That she looked down from the window of her fortress tower and despised him in her heart. And the text goes on to elaborate on the conversation that they have when David gets home. How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, she tells him going around half-naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. Mikau kind of reminds me of the guy in the bowling alley with the glove and the custom ball who flips out when some kid distracts him or knocks a few points off his score. If you are that guy or gal, by the way, I'm sorry to keep, you know, picking on you, but there's something to be said for being able to laugh at yourself, for being able to have a little fun. Mikal can't. She's all business. I don't think it's really the servant girls she's worried about. She's worried about proper etiquette. She's worried about 
decorum, worried about how all of this reflects on the royal family, how it all reflects on her. She can't join in on the fun. I don't think she even knows how. If there's one thing I love about our church. It's that our congregation has a sense of humor and knows how to really enjoy the work that we do here. It is work, but we get so much out of it, and we find so much enjoyment in this community. We do have a lot of meetings, to be fair. We've got a big one after this service. A lot of folks from the church uh, come from a corporate background that cherishes excellence and sound strategic planning and hard work. And that's largely what makes our church successful in the conventional sense of the word. But I'll tell you, it's not what makes it special. It's not what makes it different from the work that you might do at the office. It's not what makes it a community like no other. What makes our meetings here different, I think, is that they're frequently punctuated with prayer and personal sharing and laughter and good humor. Even staff meetings, you know, are more than just a a gathering of employees to discuss the business of the church. You know, we often eat together. We share our stories. We even poke fun at each other like old friends. And wouldn't you know it, we still manage to get things done. And if I may speak on their behalf, done rather well. In his book, The Birth of Tragedy, Friedrich Nietzsche speaks at great length about two opposing and yet complementary approaches to life. The first of these is the Apollonian approach, named for Apollo, the Greek god of light and logic and rationality. And the other is the Dionysian mentality, in honor of Dionysus, the god of revelry and wine and song. Nietzsche acknowledges the importance and the necessity of Apollo's rational logic. He knows that without it, the world would burn. He knows that strategic plans and meetings and lists and action items have their place, but it's clear in his writing that he longs for something wilder, what he calls the Dionysian spirit. And he writes these words, Lift up your hearts, my fellows, higher and higher, and the legs, you mustn't forget those, lift up your legs to accomplished dancers, or, to top it all, stand on your heads. Laughter, I declare to be blessed. You who aspire to greatness, learn how to laugh. And I believe our church fuses these Apollonian and Dionysian philosophies together beautifully. You know, we know how to get things done, but we also know how to dance. Not literally, you know, you don't see much of that going on in the pews, um, but you know what I mean. Even at our annual meeting, which I hope you'll attend today, we find that it's more than a matter of business. It's a telling of stories, really, about who we are as a people. And who are we exactly? We have a, uh, a running joke in the communications office about being the quirky church. Whenever I come up with some outlandish marketing idea like, uh, 
you know, producing a swimsuit calendar of the minor prophets or something. You know, our, our communications director, Sherry, just replies, we could do whatever we want. We're the quirky church. <laughs> There's a lot to be said for being quirky. And at the risk of sounding like a motivational poster in a dentist's office, there's a lot to be said for dancing like nobody's watching. Nietzsche also wrote, perhaps there is a realm of wisdom after all from which the logician is excluded. But don't take it from an embittered German atheist. The scriptures teach us the very same thing. Jesus taught us that true wisdom is found in grace and not in law. And in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant, in the presence of God, David danced with all of his might. About, uh, I guess it was about halfway through my bowling match with my son, with only about three points to my name on the scoreboard, I decided to take a wildly different approach to the game. I had nothing to lose. I reached for the ball, hefting all six pounds of it, because <laughs> I still use a children's ball. And I closed my eyes, and instead of opening them to stare down the pins, tensing my muscles or, or trying to control my rigid form, I, I loosened every muscle in my body. And I began to tap my foot. And then, as if moving to some invisible tune, I spun around backwards, began moonwalking my way to the lane. My limbs were like string cheese flowing and swaying, and I swung around towards the lane and released the ball like I was setting a butterfly free. It struck the wooden th floor like thunder, and wouldn't you know it, sailed straight as an arrow, knocking down every last pin. It was the only strike I got that day, but my game improved remarkably. Uh, once I started dancing my way to the lane, the guy in the next lane gave me a dirty look every time I did it, but that was okay. You know, I didn't stop. I waltzed, I jazzed, I pizzazzed. The pins falling down were just the icing on the cake. For the first time, I actually started enjoying the game. My son has this little book called uh, Me and My Dad. It's a collection of writings from small children about their fathers. When my bowling ball goes into the gutter and I get mad, a little boy named Chad writes, my dad says, I will love you even if it goes out the door and into the river. That's really silly, but it's nice to know anyway. It's nice to know, isn't it, that there are more important things than good metrics or worldly success, or points on a screen in some bowling alley. So as we live, and as we work, and as we keep on building this beautifully quirky church, I pray that we find the courage to dance, and that we might find joy in the work of our hands. Amen. <laughs>